Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, and I'm here today for our interview episode with my colleagues, David Canfield. Hi. And Chris Murphy. Hi. We are entering into Emmy season and have two interviews for you today, which is so exciting. So uh, we're going to hear conversations with Chloe Sevigny and Matt Rogers. And uh, first up is going to be Chloe. So, David, you were the one who got to talk to the star of not one, but two huge Emmy season shows. Uh, How was your conversation with Chloe Sevigny? Yeah, so this is an interesting moment for Chloe. She has two very different projects coming this season, both of which are airing right now. Uh, Russian Doll recently debuted on Netflix, and we talked a lot about her relationship with Natasha Lyonne, who directed her this season. She stars, she created the show. Of course, it's very... A personal project for her, and she and Chloe are, are very good friends um, and have been for decades. So they really got to collaborate more closely on this than they really ever have before, despite uh, having worked together on, on a couple things. We were very wary of spoilers because everything on the show feels like a spoiler. But we did get into the dynamic between their characters and uh, particular challenges of playing um, a character who is involved in some of the craziness of the season, let's say. I mean, there's a lot of good detail there. And for Go From Plainville, Chloe's really devastating uh, in this show. She plays the mother of a teenager who dies by suicide. It's a kind of showcase, dramatic showcase that she doesn't get too, too often. And she really just nails it. And it's really powerful. And she's really aware, uh, or she says she's aware in her conversation of um, not getting to show that kind of side of her talent too often and um, really relishing it. And so we talked a lot about that and, and what's hopefully next for her. Yeah, I respect you guys for being wary about spoilers. But since Russian Doll is out, I do feel like, I mean, she's been in the previous season, but this season just allows her to do so much more and, and really um, pop in a way that I don't think she did in previous seasons. It's really exciting to watch. Definitely. And it's interesting to hear her talk about how Natasha knows her and vice versa, and and what that can bring out in an actor, uh, and particularly for this show. It it did a lot for Chloe. Well, let's hear your conversation with Chloe Sevigny. It's a busy spring for you, Chloe. You've got a couple shows out, which I think is very exciting as a longtime fan. Thank you. Couple shows and a wedding. Oh, and a wedding. Well... (laughs) Look at me not doing my research. Not to get too personal. We should focus <laughs> on the shows. But yes, that overarching, like, yes, busyness is, whew. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll ask briefly about all that together. How, what is the, the feeling right now in this moment with <laughs> the personal and professional colliding like that? I mean, it feels good. You know, both the shows are like, well, Girl from Plainville is a little trickier to talk about. You know, I mean, we want to get out there. We want people to watch it, obviously. But it's not like... And I'm getting married. You know, it's like, it's hard to segue. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I can imagine. But yeah, no, I mean, really proud of the work, really proud of both the shows, proud of Natasha, excited to be married, getting married, all kinds, you know, it's like, it's a very, 
busy, joyous moment. I was thinking back to like a couple years ago and I was like, will I ever work again without a home, without a boyfriend, like calling my brother crying. <laughs> and now, and now I'm like, do I ever get a day off? <laughs> <laughs> and here you are talking to me. Indeed, yeah. you do not get a day off. Uh, well, well, let's start with Russian Doll. Um, this will come out after the premiere, but we should still probably be, be careful in what we say. But um it's a really exciting new season. You obviously play a much larger part in this season after um, a briefer appearance in the first one. I imagine you and Natasha, with whom, of course, you're very close, had, had never worked together in this capacity, right? This closely? Not in this capacity. We've acted together before. In the 90s, we first appear in um, If These Walls Could Talk too, with yeah. Michelle Williams. <laughs> and then we did <laughs> uh, a cult indie classic, Party Monster. But um, no, in season one, yeah, Nora makes a brief appearance, uh, but pivotal in um, in one episode. It's kind of, you know, gives a lot of the backstory to Natasha's character, Nadia. And um, that episode was directed by Leslie Hedlund, one of the creators. And season two, Nora appears a lot more in different capacities. And... Natasha was directing and also acting alongside me. So yeah, we were much more in the thick of it together. And it was really an incredible experience. I mean, she it was a real passion project, which I'm always attracted to, you know, showrunners, creators, directors that, you know, it's like a live, a live or die situation. <laughs> and with yeah. Natasha was really this, she was like, everything's riding on season two. And, you know, <laughs> sophomore efforts often have that kind of pressure to them. But yeah. You know, she just had a lot to prove, and and people loved the first season so much that 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 it felt pretty high stakes. Yeah, how did it feel watching her in action and and being so under her, you know, and within her expression and and being a part of it? She reminded me a lot of David Fincher, who I worked with on on Zodiac. Just okay. like <laughs> just like demanding a level of excellency. I think Harmony Korine was also similar. He directed me in a film called Gummo and Julian Donkey Boy, and and just like they're just true artists, you know. And they like they want everybody else to be as excited as they are, and you know, just the passion is like always like at like 150 and mm -hmm. that's really nice to be around and oftentimes in tv you know you have different directors coming in and they're you know they're passionate about the work and enthusiastic but it's it's different than it's than when it's one person's passion project baby whatever you want to say so yeah just just being around her and 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 seeing her like being quick on her toes and and making adjustments where necessary, budget wise, performance wise, you know, location wise, just like just seeing her brain really active was is a sight to behold. You mentioned um, being more familiar with directors and showrunners of that singularity, um, but of course, you've never I I would think worked with somebody, been directed by somebody with whom you're so close, how did that impact you as an actor? Well, the part is, 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 I don't want to say it's a stretch, but you know, she's, she's, she's dealing with some mental, you know, um, challenges. So, so there is always the like pushing it, you know, and just knowing that Natasha is really going to have my back. She's on my side as far as vanity is concerned. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, not going to make me look bad. I feel like there's a lot of times where shows like, oh, it's really gritty and it's really real. So it's not a glamour show. It's like, but it's still TV or it's still a movie. You still want everyone to look beautiful. <laughs> so like, I feel right. like I felt like 
not to be so surface, but like it felt like I could relax more in the performance and try things in a way that I knew she was like going to make me look good. First of all, in my performance and second of all, look good as in beauty wise. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, because the first season I was not really happy with how I looked. I was like really frazzled and crazed and had this terrible wig that they just pulled off the truck. And she really like I knew she was going to take care of me. And I feel like that gave me a certain ease within the performance. Yeah. Can, can, can you talk a little bit about playing that part of, of Nora, of this character? Um, it, it can be particularly intense mm-hmm. uh, at times relating to her experiences and also what it reveals about the larger fabric of the show and, and Nadia. How did you how did you key into her this season? Well, I, I don't know. Where are we with spoilers? I forgot because most most of my <laughs> I think you scenes, can you can get the general Yeah, it's kind of more Nadia inhabiting Nora. Yeah. And I don't do impersonations. I'm not a comedian. I found that very challenging, actually. I was like, here's my friend of 25 years, something like I I know this person, I can move like her. I can do this. And we got on set and then I'm like, okay, action. I was like, wow, this is really hard. And she would do a scene and then like I would watch the monitor and then I would try and like do what she had done. And I was like, I just, I just somehow I got in my head. I don't know. I just had a really, I got, I found it very challenging. So we would have to like isolate real moments to do these, like, you know, mimic her body language, the way she talks, you know, there was like, we were doing a lot more actually on the set where we'd actually like have Nora play it as Nora then have Nora play it as Nadia because they weren't sure in the edit how things were really going to work out either you know if people were really going to be able to get on board with the storytelling device so it was like a little bit of like it was a little treading water as far as just like trying things and and (laughs) hoping they worked sure but again I mean that easier to do that better to do that probably with someone that you can trust like that (laughs) yes for sure for sure she's a great director a great friend i don't i don't i don't know um but she'd be like you know when i do or whatever when i do this thing and there's like a shorthand that makes it somewhat easier i i wanted to ask you about directing as well i know you had started uh directing shorts a few years ago and are looking to do a feature and i i think it's interesting that seems like you and Natasha both started directing roughly around the same time. Had you spoken about it? And did you gather anything from watching her on the show as, as a director yourself? Yeah, we've been talking about it for years and, you know, um, trying to buoy each other and encourage each other. She really, you know, fast-tracked. But when we were first starting out doing shorts, you know, we were like watching each other's 20 cuts of each other's shorts, you know, giving each other notes. and But yeah, I mean, I think just as outrageous of a story as you have or a concept like Russian Doll, you know, if you're out there and you're charismatic, you can get someone invested in it. So I think no idea is too big is really what the, one of the big takeaways. Continuing over to, to Girl from Plainville, where you work with Lisa Cholodenko here, um, and you've worked with a pretty incredible array of filmmakers over your career. As you've thought about directing more, watching people like Lisa or Natasha or Luke Guadagnino or whoever, I mean, is there a kind of absorption for you in that, in in working with them and seeing how they have different approaches that maybe would work for you as you get into it? There is. Um, I also think different actors 
react differently to different sorts of direction. But yeah. I always like a director who's super prepared, obviously, and then has ideas that I couldn't come up with or wouldn't, you know, just that that has an arsenal of ways to look at a scene or a line or, you know, the character that's you know, eye-opening, inspiring. You know, I know that Natasha actually had worked with a acting coach and gone through and like kind of played each character for him to figure out like ins and outs of like how to speak to the actors and really dig into each character. So she would have more material to talk to the actors about. And I thought that was really a smart way to approach material. Mm, Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Are there any filmmakers particularly who have stood out to you over the years i know you just work with luca again and he's far from your only um multi-collaborator uh i've worked with jim jarmusch a couple times three times um yeah i mean luca is an exceptional talent he he is actually someone who's prepared but not prepared he'll like show up and be like what are we doing today let me see this let me see the scene (laughs) and then they like come up with the most genius thing ever and you're like what Right. How is this happening? There's no shot list? What? Like, <laughs> he just is instinctual and intuitive. And I don't know, his brain just works like that. And he's like reading a million things at once. He has like four iPads, 10 newspapers. <laughs> like, I'm just like, how can you even focus? How do you know? I guess that's just, you know, he needs like this constant stimulation. Whereas like Jim is very measured and every word has a certain condimentation and there's different preparation you know and he really leans on fred elms who also worked on girl from plainville cinematographer so Mm. i think there's a lot of like not only working with the actors but how they communicate with dps i feel like is very helpful as a director that i really uh, that i really am always staying very attuned to because that's like a really important you know relationship on the set and also like first ads and i love ading like i am a control freak so like when i'm on set and things are going slow i like, what's happening what are we waiting for who's doing what and like so i always go into <laughs> ad mode because i like there's so much time i don't want to say wasted but there's a lot of time in between when the camera's rolling so i'm always freaking out because i was like then we only get to do three takes you know, F right. you, you know what I mean? Like, like what is happening now? Because we need more time in front of the camera. Thank you very much. Cause that's, <laughs> that's, that's my moment. And I need that. Um, I, I saw in for girl from Plainville, you'd said you were maybe uh, a little worried about finding a way out of the emotion. It's another really intense character. Uh, there are some pretty harrowing scenes you have to play, especially uh, in more recent episodes. Did you find a way out of it? Like, what what kind of strategies do you have for separating? Yeah, I'm watching other stories, other shows, listening to podcasts, really, like, because or else my, you know, I'll just keep kind of going over what we did during the day or thinking about, you know, scenes to come. So it's really a good way to, you know, escape. I mean, that's why so many of us love sitting down with a good TV show. I mean, last night, like... I could not wait to see the next episode of Winning Time and just give over <laughs> to that world for an hour and, you yeah. know, fully immersive um, experience. So, yeah, there was a lot of that, you know, talking to friends at home, on the phone, you know, regular stuff that people do to stay grounded. Mm-hmm. Wine. It- <laughs> wine. <laughs> the occasional glass of wine. <laughs> Wedding planning, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Not yet, no. But yeah, and then also, you know, I think um, 
unfortunately during COVID times, it's hard to really socialize, but we were like trying to, you know, you know, after work, standing around, talk to the other actors about what we did, just keep a perspective on, on, on what we were doing and, and a respect for it and kind of trying to learn to leave, leave work, you know, on the set a bit. Have you in the past found certain roles hard to shake off? I mean, you're, you're someone who has certainly not shied away from challenging or <laughs> doing devastating material in the past. I remember there was a season of Big Love, actually, which, you know, I was very invested in. And I love yeah. that character so much. And, you know, we shot for six months out of the year for five years straight. And, well, there was a strike in there somewhere, but a uh, writer strike. But there was a season when everybody was like, had it out for Nikki. Like, they thought she was cheating, this, that, the other thing. And I just remember, like, I was just getting all these, like, insults spewed at me all day long. And I, I was really affecting me. Yeah. Having to be open to that and taking that in and responding to it on screen. Like, I was starting to feel like very <laughs> fragile. <laughs> I'm like, this is just a Nick, character. Nikki could have to take a <laughs> Nikki had to take a on? lot of times. <laughs> she did. And and I mean, I feel like she was like one of the most misunderstood characters on television. Everyone's like, oh, she's such a bitch. She's I was like, she think of the world she's straddling, what she came out of. I think she was like. Yeah. Yeah. One of the more complicated, fragile characters. So, yeah, I remember that being that being a hard year. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Nikki's Nikki's uh, Nikki was a complicated one for sure. <laughs> but also miss, miss that girl. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of the actual, you know, nature of playing this particular character in Girl from Plainville, I'm curious. Over the course of your career, having done quite a bit of television, what do you gain from spending a little bit more time with a role? I mean, you mentioned Big Love six months out of the year for five years. Um, What about that appeals to you? I mean, you've done quite a bit of television at this point. Right. I haven't done that many like series where I get to go back. I guess I did Bloodline. I did a few series. We did a few seasons. I guess, yeah, just learning, getting to grow with the character, getting the storyline to grow, you know, having the writers see something in you. I think I cite this with Big Love a lot in the, in the beginning, like first season or so. They're really writing more of the drama for me. And then they realized I was funny. So by the end, like I was getting a lot of the comedy. So yeah, just having, you know, writers creators discover your strong suits and then write for them is, you know, really, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great relationship to have. Um, Girl from Plainville, there's a, a balance, I think, in this character between, you know, what is at times a very raw, heartbreaking portrayal, but there's also a real grounded, enduring quality to her as well. Mm -hmm. How how Mm -hmm. did you find, how did you find that balance? Well, I think a lot was in the writing. I think they didn't want it to be all just like doom and gloom, obviously. They wanted to really, you know, capture some of the, I don't want to say lighter moments, but other moments, you know, that she had with her son and other children. And you just, we really wanted her to be, you know, multifaceted, not just like the grieving mom. And I think Liz Hanna and Patrick McManus, our showrunners, and all of our directors and obviously editors really let us sit with the characters and have air and, you know, be in silence and not have to have this like high drama, high stakes pitch, you know, throughout. So I think that really lends itself to the performance and that kind of grounded feeling, soulful feeling that you get when watching it. Mm. 
Um, I, I saw you'd said this was perhaps the closest you'd come to the feeling of making Boys Don't Cry, which was a pretty striking statement. Why was that? What, what about that feeling with Boys Don't Cry do you remember? And, and how did that approach this experience? I guess it was just like how emotionally I was affected by the story. I mean, it's a true story. And just living, living, you know, even briefly in what this woman must be going through, opening yourself up to those emotions was, yeah, was profound. And, and, and yeah, had a similar effect to um, how I felt when we were shooting Boys Don't Cry. And, and then after, you know, after, after was really hard for me, like doing all the Academy stuff and the whole awards, you know, circuit and all of that stuff felt really awkward for me. I was, you know, I was still pretty young and yeah. new in my career and just like, here we are doing all this and there they are in Nebraska. Like, I don't know. It was, it was very confusing for me. Is that, I mean, that is a, a unique element of this business. Is it something you've been able to square a little bit more as you... A little bit. I mean, I know that Lynn like really wants people to hear her son's story and she was really behind the project and she, you know, she's fighting for this law in Massachusetts. So I think like knowing that we had her blessing and, and, and awareness, and I think there's so much for, you know, all the L Fanning fans, young people tuning in, hopefully some of the material will resonate with them and how they communicate with their friends, what they see in their friends who they then reach out to for help. Like, I think that that's, that, that there's so much for people to learn from this show and, and experience. And so to me, it, it feels, you know, uh, important. Hmm. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, feeling a few, fearing a few years ago about, uh, perhaps not working again, not getting. Yeah. I love that. Like the girl. Frank Langella, um, essay, the demon seesaw. Have you ever read that? Uh, I've heard of I've heard about it. I haven't oh, read it. It's classic. <laughs> yeah. it's classic um, for every actor. Every actor should just look at it like once a year and be like, oh yeah, okay, that's why I'm feeling like that. I don't need to hire another manager or a different publicist or whatever it is <laughs> when panic <laughs> ensues. <laughs> well, well, I mean, bring me into to this moment now. I mean, these are both projects that are they're great projects and they're really different. As you think about your career, does it feel like a good place to be in, a good map going forward? I'm, it's a broad question, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I always want to, you know, I mean, you always hope that a show hits and lands. You know, I feel like my work in We Are Who We Are was really great as well, but that show didn't quite land as much, and that was unfortunate. So yeah. you just, you know, you just hope that, like, the work that you're in, you're proud of, and people watch it, and and it could help propel you, and other people you respect will see it and, and consider you for something else or see a quality in you that maybe they weren't aware of or didn't think that you possessed for some reason. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's the most you can you can hope for, and then get out there and talk about it. Is there an element of revealing that kind of stuff to yourself too? I mean, are there parts of these roles where you got to stretch or try things that or show things that you hadn't before? I think in both of these roles, yeah, both of these roles were were, were pretty new and challenging and daunting in their own ways. Uh, next, I'd like to play a really lighthearted, glamorous character. <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> because, I mean, I never get to play a glamorous character. I was like, well, how come I've never played anybody glamorous? <laughs> Which is crazy for you, I feel like. That... I know. I feel like 
you know, like a like an unraveled, glamorous something is really like you know, do. Who's who's your dream director for that kind of for that kind of role? <laughs> Dead or alive, Bob Fosse. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a great answer. <laughs> yeah alive um coen brothers i think they do like an interesting kind of glamour yeah i think so yeah are there any directors over the course of your career who have perhaps brought something out in you versus you maybe finding it in the writing that that you where you discovered something in working with a filmmaker oh god really putting me on the spot here (laughs) that's what what, what i'm here for that's what i'm here for (laughs) I think with like Luca and we are who we are, like I'm, I'm quite goofy in real life. And like, he wanted, he saw that in me and wanted to instill these moments where, where the mom is like being the goofy mom. And you're like, Oh my God, the son's like, Oh Lord. And yeah, I don't really get to do that on screen very much, or maybe I'm shy about it or, you know, and, uh, it was really fun to do that with him. Once again, I trusted he would make me look beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a theme. <laughs> uh, well, no, I know. Like, I feel like you you can tell when when someone really loves you, <laughs> like Natasha or Luca or Jim. You know, like there's a love and a respect coming from these people that makes me feel really. I don't want to say seen, but seen in a way that maybe other people or I haven't felt from some other filmmakers. Sure. Um, I mean, most filmmakers you would hope would fall in love with your, with the actors and, you know, but usually I try and seduce the camera operator. <laughs> <laughs> that's where, that's where you go. That's... <laughs> but no. Yeah. So yeah, Luca, yeah, he, he, he let me try stuff and that was really fun just to, mm-hmm. just to go out on a limb and, 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 you know, reveal more intimate aspects of my personality i'm hoping he got you got to do that again in his upcoming movie that's yeah top secret as far as i know (laughs) i think it is top secret but i did my best (laughs) and now uh chris murphy we're going to hear your conversation with matt rogers who also has two projects out um this spring one a movie one a tv show and he's someone who wasn't really on my radar but i think you having seen what he's involved in really jumped at it so introduce us to matt rogers yeah, well, Matt Rogers came very prepared for our podcast interview because he also hosts an incredible podcast with SNL's Bowen Yang. So he had his own setup, his own mic. He was raring and ready to go, which was lovely <laughs> to see. Um, but yeah, it was really wonderful to talk to Matt. I've been a fan of Matt's work for years now. He sort of started in this queer comedy scene in New York and has since moved to LA. And I, you know, I remember seeing him, you know, do these basement shows, and we talk about this on the episode, having to scale back his sort of natural energy and exuberance and sort of fit it to screen performances now, which is something that, you know, we didn't know was going to happen five or so years ago. Um, and both projects are really, really fantastic. Uh, he stars in I Love That For You with Vanessa Bayer and Molly Shannon and Jennifer Lewis. And he takes the very familiar trope of the gay assistant and kind of turns it on its head hmm. and delves deeper into that experience and makes it a more lived in experience while also being super funny and hilarious. So we really got into sort of what it means to take on um, a marginalized character that, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe would get three lines in, you know, a one-off episode and is now a central character on the show. And then we also sort of switched gears and talked about his great film, speaking of Bowen Yang, um, Fire Island, written by and starring Joel Kim Booster and also starring Bowen Yang and Matt Rogers, which I wrote a 
a first look for for Vanity Fair. So you were actually, in you were uh, in person on the set, in fact. Exactly. I got a, I, I scammed my way into a free trip to Fire Island for a day um, on the company's dime. No, it was really great. Um, and I got to spend a day on set and really see them working together as a group. And Matt's really wonderful performance in a very different, a much freer, a much more, um, I'll say it, sluttier character than the one that he plays on I Love That For You. So it was really wonderful to sort of unpack both of these two very different screen performances with Matt and Yeah, so people can watch I Love That For You now on Showtime, and Fire Island is out on Hulu in the beginning of June, right? Indeed. I Love That For You is streaming now on Showtime, and yes, and Fire Island hits Hulu on June 3rd. Thank you. Well well done uh, on all the plugs. Let's hear your conversation with Matt Rogers. Matt Rogers, thank you so much for coming on Little Gold Men. Chris Murphy, I can't tell you enough. (laughs) <laughs> how lovely it is to be here seeing you. For those who don't know, I mean, I'm sure you all know, Matt is sort of a professional podcaster. Um, <laughs> so My setup was already set up, in fact, from this morning. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely great. I always sort of imagined that I would be talking to Matt on his podcast, Las Culturistas, with Bo and Yang. One of these One, days. But it seems the tables have turned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. But uh, yes, that, that's fantastic. But I really, I want to dive in and talk about your fantastic new show on Showtime. I love that for you. Created by Vanessa Bear, starring Vanessa Bear, starring, you know, just some casual people. Vanessa Bear, Molly Shannon, Jennifer Lewis, and yourself. What, can you just talk to me, you know, um, diving into that experience and sort of, you know, sharing the screen with such legends, let's just say it. What was that like? Well, you have to imagine you're me and you walk into a room and it's Vanessa Bear. Molly Shannon, Jennifer Lewis, and then you're also sort of, you know, expected to be there and perform. And it's sort of out of body, really. I, I, you can't pick people that are more formative for me. I mean, not not in a weird way where it's like, it, it, it wasn't distracting. In fact, it was more, okay, this is actually, I'm here, let's, let's get to their level. Mm-hmm. But it's tough when they're firing at such tens. And I mean... This show really gives them all the opportunity to really go there. Like, it's, of course, a great showcase for Vanessa. Mm -hmm. But what happens with Jennifer and Molly's characters is just so... It, it it's very demanding. And I, you know, I spoke with Jennifer recently and she was saying, you know, I thought I signed on to do this little comedy and then it demanded so much of me. And, you know, I think we're all just really excited and sort of emotional about people seeing it because it's a very special show with, like you said, incredible people. I mean, Molly, Jennifer, and Vanessa right there. I mean, that that triumvirate, uh, that how trifecta. do you improve upon it? You, you can't. Really, you really can't. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I guess we should talk about what the show is about because it's, mm. it's, it's really, it's laugh out loud funny, but it also has like a very sort of dark emotional center with Vanessa Bayer's character, um, Joanna Gold. She had childhood leukemia and beats it and then becomes a QVC host <laughs> on a channel called SVN. And to keep her job, she says her cancer has come back. And it's really, that's in the pilot episode and that immediately sets the tone and the place that, wow, we're like, it's hilarious, but it's also definitely dark. It's definitely not, not afraid to go there. No, I mean, it's a Showtime comedy and Showtime comedies, you know, they quote unquote have elbows as it were. It really explores like the human psyche. And I'll just say, basically the fun way of pitching it is it's basically the devil wears Prada, but set at the home shopping network. 
And yes, I do get to be the Emily Blunt, which is sort of a gay man's dream. To say you're the Emily Blunt type in anything is really huge, but... That's huge. It's amazing. That is sort of the role I play. And basically, we we find Vanessa's character at a time in her life where... She feels like she's capable of so much, but is not doing anything in her life. And she feels that this thing from her childhood, which is that she was a cancer survivor, is holding her back because she's coddled by her parents. She doesn't have a relationship. You know, her friendships are surface at best. And she's just, she knows she's capable of so much professionally. And she has this dream. And, you know, by stroke of opportunity and talent, she does get the job. And when she finds out that it's a very cutthroat atmosphere, the Special Value Network, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, it, it's pretty, it goes pretty there. That's pretty good. Um, you know, she really finds out that she has to have an on-air brand to connect with audiences. And she's never really had to think much about who she was outside of her illness and the way that people treat her. So she gets pushed to a very desperate point. And when mm-hmm. she is going to lose her job, she makes a decision in a moment to lie about her reality, which is that she does not have cancer. She's fully cured and hasn't had it for so many years. And I think what the show explores is just how far we're willing to go in into the depths of pretending mm-hmm. to keep a facade up that will make us happy. It really explores just you know, what we project to others versus the reality. Because I think we all know what it's like to be one thing but show another thing. You know, how to make yourself more marketable to people. How do you make yourself more palatable? That's Instagram. That's social media. I mean, it's so it's everything. crazy. It's really, yeah, it really is. And it, it really, it, it, that's what makes it a great show for now. Because I think on paper, Joanna Gold does something that, you know, if you read about it, you'd be like, put her in jail. Mm-hmm. But I think this explores <laughs> the reality of what happens when someone is feels they have no other choice. And, you know, it also really examines just our society today. Like, we as consumers, we accept so much about what we're told. Yeah. And we know so little about what really goes on. And, you know, I just, I really enjoy being on a show that, like I, like we said before, it really is funny. And it is a, it is a hard comedy, first and foremost. Laugh out loud. But it, it also has these these themes that make you really think about the what I'm projecting, what what I'm what I'm buying into. It's it's a very cool show. I know, I love it, and it's so it's in watching the show. It actually made me think like, wow, like was like QVC and SVN like sort of like ahead of the curve in terms of like you know on our whole lives now are about like how we're branded, how we're selling mm-hmm. ourselves on social media and LinkedIn and all these different platforms. And QVC was selling stuff to us well before, you know, everything became an ad and everything became shoppable, right? Literally. And I mean, you know, the the thing about shopping and the thing about retail therapy and why it works is because it helps us feel like we're filling a hole. You know what I mean? It helps us feel like we are fulfilling something, you know, even just getting something in the mail, especially during a time like the pandemic. Like sometimes it would be all I was looking forward to. The only thing that we had like were physical things that we could hold and touch in our own houses. And you know, it is, it is so, there's this promise that we're going to be happier afterwards. Mm. And the thing about that dopamine hit of getting that thing in the mail or of feeling like you, you know, hit purchase on something that you really wanted is it does make you feel better. And so that is what connects people to these on-air hosts and they do all have these relatable brands and it's just something that's very real and very prevalent in society and it it, it, the setting of the special value network is it's so easy to map 
so much onto it. Yeah. And Jeremy Byler and Vanessa Bayer co-created the show. They're brilliant. Jesse Klein was the showrunner. My dear friend, Sudi Green, my best friend for so many years, is one of the co-EPs and was the writer on set. So it was always at the forefront, like how do we maximize the comedy, but also we how do we tell this real story about people who, to some extent, are all lying about who they are. Yes. And you see that with all the supporting characters as this as the season progresses. You get to know everyone a little bit better and you see what they project versus who they are and the desperate measures they'll take to be happy when they feel like they're lacking something in their life. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's so interesting and uh, the, so spot on. And you'd think, I mean, from talking, it's so funny because when I started watching the show, I was like, oh, well, Matt's obviously going to be like one of the SVN hosts and whatnot. Yeah. But your character actually, you know, is an assist- is actually behind the scenes, is sort of like the little finger of the SVN world, like pulling the strings and sort of running everything. So can you talk to me a little bit about your character? Well, Darcy Leeds, the best. It's just an incredible name. <laughs> a name that I don't think could possibly be real. I think I think his name is probably you know Anthony and he he picked the name Darcy to sound to sound you know more desirable on a resume that's my theory that scans it's such a good name Darcy Leeds basically Darcy is the senior associate to Patricia Cochran who's played by Jennifer Lewis in the show and he will be the first to tell you that he is not her assistant the reality is he basically is her (laughs) assistant but what I loved about the character when I read it in the audition was it really riffed on this idea of you know the gay assistant Mm -hmm. someone who comes in and just serves the purpose of asking someone what flavor press juice they're gonna like today where they could put something down what they should do with a call coming in you know I've auditioned for so many of these types of roles. I can only imagine. Um, Yeah, and especially, you know, during pilot season, which is when this came in, um, I had gotten just a sea of the same character that really didn't have much depth beyond that. And so when I read in the audition sides that this character's first line is just so you know I'm more than what you think, and then whether or not that's true was really explored in the show, I thought this is going to be really smart. And then that's in the whole script. It's just such a smart show. But what I loved about this character is actually they do walk the walk Mm -hmm. and you get to understand so much more about this person who has made his professional environment his entire life. And what happens when a person starts to feel devalued or like they're going to be trapped when they've already decided to make an environment their entire life. And he does go to some desperate places. And what I really appreciate about the writing of this character and what I was so fun to play was the code switching that has to be done when someone is really good at their job in a professional environment. You know, he's one person with Patricia. He is another person with Vanessa, who yes. he loves to run status on. <laughs> and any opportunity he gets to let anyone know that he's above them and able to dictate their schedule, he's going to take because he has so little power. Yes. And then you also see as the series progresses his relationships with his colleagues, particularly his best friend, who's the on-air host, Beth Ann McGann, played by Aidan Mayeri. Wait, can you say that again? That was such a, so she is such an amazing name on the show. Beth Ann McGann. McGann. Beth Ann yeah. McGann. <laughs> You'll find that a lot of the on-air hosts have three word names, which is just a small, fun detail. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you really see who he is through that relationship and you get a sense of his goals. You see in episode two, you know, he is wanting more than just this job and 
he is sort of at the whim of Patricia, played by Jennifer, mm. to sort of give him those opportunities. And she knows that. So it's actually a very dynamic relationship that, you know, we'll see how toxic it gets and, and what unfolds. Oh, I can't wait. And that's something that I, I immediately clued in because, of course, like we know the gay assistant trope. And, it, and for a while, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago on sitcoms or on television, you'd get the gay assistant for maybe, you know, three lines and then they'd be gone. And now in this sort of like, I would say I love that for you is a part of this amazing like queer revolution in terms of like taking these marginalized characters that normally, you know, might have two lines like you might, you know, you might see in like, you know, a 30 rock cutaway and putting yeah. them at the center and giving them an actual, you know, a life with stakes and apps and wants and dreams and also making it funny. I just really was impressed by that. And the fact is, you never know if that's what you're going to get or not. Because right, yeah. even though I thought there was potential in the first episode, I'm still a gay actor in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Who's at this point in my career, just 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 now booking these types of roles. So, uh, you know, someone at number six on the call sheet, you know, <laughs> there, there are no guarantees with, with three incredible leads like this that mm -hmm. you're not just going to get, you know, the quote unquote, like, sassy one-liners yes. which I, I i shiver even saying <laughs> not that they're not effective yeah. but that but you don't want that to be no. the the reality of your entire character yeah. and then when i got the second episode and pretty much the first scene is a glimpse into his desires and his his aspirations and you see the stakes between he and jennifer's character it's just it was really really exciting for me because I haven't really gotten the opportunity to play a character like this. And then you get it on such a high level. Mm -hmm. And every episode, I mean, we would be getting new episodes of this show. And you could hear screams coming from everyone's trailer. I mean, every episode gets better. And the, the plots get thicker. And it's just one of those little shows that I don't think anyone is going to see coming. And it's just... It's just good. It's, it's just, just so, so good. good. And, and speaking, I'm critical and you know and I'm I, critical. I, oh, I absolutely know that you're critical <laughs> and as, as, as am I. And I will say, coming from it, I will say, uh, speaking of good, your work I've, uh, in the uh, second episode, like you do some really subtle, like sort of like heartbreaking. It's like, it's funny, but some, it was some really emotional, like subtle, like Nicole Kidman-ass work. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole Kidman-ass work is, is getting pulled Pull for my press quotes. That's for sure. Well, I think it's a really great. And so having I, you know, you're Thank a comedian. You. You're, you used to live in New York. I used to, I can't tell you the amount of times I've seen you absolutely slay on a big stage and just be so funny. I would love to know, like, taking that energy and all, you know, all of your gifts and that and paring it down to like, you know, a, a, like a 30 minute television series. What was that like? Like, and having some like serious acting moments to sort of deliver. Well, thank you for saying that. And I will say when I first got the breakdown for the character, he was described as dry. Mm. And I think I'm one of the wettest I, people around. <laughs> I would say you've definitely been dipped in a pool. I could definitely see. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, well, you know, she's a Pisces rising Pisces cancer moon. She is by definition soaking wet. Soaking wet. Um, but, sure. you know, it was interesting because I thought to myself, you know, they'll find someone else for this because I'm not someone who's ever been told that my smallness is my gift as an actor. Like, in fact, I commonly get the note to, you need to throw it away. And so I had <laughs> yeah. done enough of that and I had, you know, sat around and, and watched enough. And I, I feel, 
you know, I got to a point where I was comfortable just going in there and being because I internalized the dialogue and it was so good so that when I went to my audition, I really just kind of threw it away Wow! and treated it like it was another day at work. Mm-hmm. And because for him it is, you know, even if he's selling Janine by Janine placemats. And another that's, incredible know, name. <laughs> yeah, like for him, that's a brand he deals with all the time. And it was just second nature to him. And I actually found that, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed doing this type of thing, but it is different for me, someone who was born screaming in basements in New York City. You know what I mean? Like I I came up through sketch comedy. I was a UCB kid. I, you know, ran my sketch group at NYU, Hammercats. Um, and I saw I, those shows. I went to a Hammercats show back in the day. Yeah. And I love you for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that, that well. for us. Um, and no, you've always been so supportive. And and I, I love you so much. And oh. I, 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 that you're, you're, that's like a real coming through the New York comedy community is a real badge of honor for me because I feel like I, I came up around so many incredible people and, you know, not just Bowen, I'm talking about Joel Kim Booster, Catherine Cohen, you yes. know, Mitra Juhari, Patty Harrison, you know, th- these are my friends. Yes. So to see these people sort of come up through the entertainment industry and now be, you know, movers and shakers, it's like so great to be involved in that. But also it is a hard transition from the wildness of that to this on camera acting. And it was different for me. And like I said, you know, I walk in and then I'm surrounded by these greats and they're, and I know Molly Shannon also comes from sketch comedy, but what you, what, what people need to understand is this woman is an incredibly talented, dramatic actor and Mm. all the cast is like that. So you do raise your game a little bit and you know, fire Island. And I love that for you have given me these incredible opportunities to, act, which is always what I was and wanted to be, but I was getting opportunities, you know, in the podcasting space with Las Culturistas, and you got to take what you, I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a workhorse. You got to take what you get. It's not a linear role, you know, or a linear path necessarily to get to star, you know, on a television series or, you know, Fire Island film, which we were definitely about to talk about, which I'm yeah. frankly obsessed with um, and have been for many months now. You wrote such an amazing piece on it and we were all so moved by it. Oh, my, I had the best time on set. I got to spend a And a when you came, it was day. so fun. It was so yeah. it was it was such a fantastic day. And I was like, oh, yeah, for work, I get to go and just see these people that I think are the funniest people just like be funny in, in, a, in a magical. But and we have They're to say best. problematic sort or not problematic, but a, a complicated <laughs> space like Fire Island, which I think the movie does such a great job of showing that that the like the dynamic there it is, you know, it's heaven and hell. It's. It's mm-hmm. it's a microcosm of our world, which is complex and nuanced and not always sunshine and lollipops and roses. No. And, you know, I think, you know, Joel Kim Booster wrote the film and he is such a thoughtful, intuitive, observant person and therefore a writer. And it's based on Pride and Prejudice, which maps perfectly onto this film. It's I mean, shocking. It really, it's really shocking how well it it really works without sort of giving anything away. But like, well, Jane Austen was a talented girl. Uh, you know, she was she she had a gift with the pen. She was um, a slave, whatever some the might quill, say. whatever. She, she was a slave. <laughs> she was a slave that Jane. But <laughs> yeah, it's a timeless story, and there's a reason why it's been told time and time again, over and over and over. Because I think that, um, especially with with the gay community, the queer community now in Fire Island, I mean, in terms of social hierarchy and social strife and social struggle and class systems, you know, and the wanting and the desiring and the having and the having not, that really maps onto Fire Island so well. And what 
what Joel Kim did so beautifully is he did not shy away from any of the realities. I think that there is obviously a race issue within Mm -hmm. the queer community. And when you go to Fire Island, it is magnified times 10. Yes. And it is a, he's described it this way, so I feel I can. It is an inherently racist and classist system. Oh, yeah. And I think the film in using Pride and Prejudice as a container really explores that. And it is a really fun movie and it's hilarious and we have so much fun in it and explores the highs and lows of the Fire Island experience to great comedic effect. But also I think what people are going to be really surprised by, and it was also achieved by Andrew on our amazing director, Mm -hmm. is just how real I think it gets and how much weight it gives the experience of being an other in Fire Island, um, whatever that means for you. Um, yeah. But it's it's it's, 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 I, it's a movie that I'm really proud to be a part of. It really is. It's just so great. Honestly, it's sort of like a through line with both of these projects where it's like you get like it's their laugh out loud comedies. It's like comedy with a capital C, but like without sacrificing the emotional core, the the actual what's actually going on underneath emotionally. And in Fire Island, it's more, you know, systemically, societally and like these Mm -hmm. things that like being, you know, as being a black gay guy who loves Fire Island, I know exactly. I very much saw myself represented in Joel's experience in the film and Bowen's experience in the film. And it's and I can't think of any sort of uh, film or queer storytelling devices where I can often say that. And I and I can definitely say I never really felt that way when reading Jane Austen. No offense, Jane, love that. I never really saw myself, <laughs> you know, right. in that, which makes a totally different time and place. But I do. It's so great because you, as you were just talking about how so many people from this sort of New York alt comedy scene are blowing up in all these amazing ways. This movie is a testament. I mean, it's you. It's your best friends. It's you. It's Joel. It's Bowen. How? What was that experience like? How was that? It is something. Obviously, I'll never forget. There should be a movie about the making of this movie. <laughs> Sometimes I think. Obviously, right, that's what I was, tried to write. You have to imagine. <laughs> it was like. It was like you know, nine or ten queer men and Margaret Cho, the icon, mm-hmm. like oh. all living together on Fire Island for a couple of weeks, and then we shot the rest of it. You know, in comp locations in Brooklyn and Long Island. But we were all really together the whole time very close, sort of having this meta experience doing this film with these themes about an environment where many of us just had been for vacation, will go again for vacation. And and it's so funny because when we were shooting it, we were living it mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think I will ever replicate with another project. But also, I think it almost was good that we were all in this little fishbowl together doing it because the weight of it is you know it's major i think that a lot a a lot of the gay community and the queer community the whole lgbtq plus community is going to be seeing this and that is a lot of pressure you know i've been involved in queer projects before and i know that the queer community has a high bar for for the way that art represents them and we should yes uh, can be critical as we said we're you know we're a critical bunch and that's good you know but that can also be hard and that can also be mean and that can sometimes be yeah so it's i can totally understand that having that so i think we all we all really tried to protect each other during it we became very close it's like a family and and I think that the entire time we just knew we were a part of something special, but mostly at the time of shooting, it was special because of the way we're all feeling together. Yeah. And it was the chemistry of the group. And like you said, you know, Joel and Bowen are my closest friends. Like, that is true. Mm-hmm. But 
I became so close with Tomas Matos, who plays Keegan in the Phenomenal. film. Phenomenal. <laughs> I became very close to Zane Phillips, who plays Dex. I mm-hmm. became closer with James Scully. You mm-hmm. know, I, I just like Conrad Rickamora is such a star in this movie. Fantastic. And so it was a mix of my sisters and also people who became family to me. Mm-hmm. And it was like like that across the board. And it, I really feel that if I'm most proud of one thing, it's the fact that that chemistry really shines through. Torian Miller, yes. uh, when, he, when he wrapped his scenes <laughs> for the movie, we were all crying. Mm-hmm. Like the last scene that we ever shot with Torian was... I won't spoil it, but it's um, at the underwear party uh, when uh, he's sort of having a moment <laughs> yes, and needs yes. to step away. hundred percent. That was his last scene, and we were all just in tears. I mean, and when everyone rapped on the movie, we it was like a mini celebration. And I just, I recently saw the movie for a second time because, of course, when you see something the first time, it's sort of that sort of dysmorphic shock you go through. That that's what am me I in doing? Like, yeah, how? What? It, what yeah. Yeah, and even with I love that for you, like I'll be sitting here enjoying it. Like I'm like, oh my God, Vanessa's so good. This is so funny. And then I'll walk in and I'll be like, no, girl, this isn't real. <laughs> this is not I real. I remember this is faking fake. that. Yeah. What, that deep fake there. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's me in that suit dressed up like this character. Yeah, but it's me. Yeah, that's I can right. imagine that being sort of a crazy moment. I'll get better at this, but you know, for right now, that's how I feel. 100%. But you know, and I saw it a second time and I... When I when it got to the end of the movie, there's a certain song that plays, and mm. there's just an image that uh, the last scene of the movie, and I just I really I broke down. I I I really am so proud to be a part of something that okay. This is therapy. Yeah. If I had shown to my 11, 12 year old self, I think that his life would have been easier. I think that it's all about projecting that back to mm-hmm. a younger generation and also paying homage to generations that have come prior. Yeah. I just felt like just the images of love and the images of sisterhood and the images of, you know, specifically queer celebration mm-hmm. are ones that are so pure and beautiful. And I know they were so pure and beautiful in the moment. So to see it captured in this legendary atmosphere, with these incredible people that I believe in so much and have believed in for so long. I'm literally on the edge right now. Yes. Um, But, but it's just surreal to be a part of it. And that's, I think something that I'm taking with me and going forward with is I was a part of it. I will always be up there on screen with them in this moment. And, you know, regardless of what people take from it or want to say about it, I know what it means to me now as someone who can watch it and remember it. And now we get to give it up to everybody. And um, that, 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 that was a really hard one. You know, like there is that process of it's ours right now and then it will be someone else's, you know, yeah. and I've had, I've had that with many different things, but with this, it was such a formative experience and such an stepping into adulthood and stepping into a new phase of, you know, my and everyone else's careers that, this was this is going to be a hard one to give up to everybody, but I'm excited too. I think you really should be. I mean, that was really beautiful. I had, like actual goosebumps. That was some. That was some Nicole well, Kidman ass work. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you, you were you were there to to write the piece, and you know we had to, you were there the day we shot the scene at T. Yes. 
What a good day to come. Great. It was so fun. It was gorgeous. And what a, so, what a fun day. Peter Smith, they were so funny. And they there. were amazing. And they're such a scene stealer in the movie, too. Really? Just they, they make such an impression. Crushed it. Crushed it. And it's just one of those things where I so, and I felt that even then, but you, again, you, you you go to set or you see movies get made and you you don't know what the final product is going to be until you see, you know, TC. You know, I believed in the project. I thought it was great. But then to watch it and to see that, oh, not only is this like a queer movie, because that's the one thing, but to, it's a queer movie for queer people like it's it's yes. specifically for it's not you know it, it can be for everyone but it's not made for how do we like not offend as many people as possible so that we can make so much money so that you know Miramax can blah 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 you know it's not that it's like it's a it's a a film about a real experience that queer people have, a specific experience that then becomes unique that anyone can tap into that is not pandering to this sort of like amorphous crowd that I just really, it felt personal and and real to me and, and also made me laugh, which I think needs to be said. Yeah, I, that's another thing too. I was like, <laughs> I, I just want to, I want to stress that it's funny. You know what I mean? It's and very I, funny. I, I will say like, you know, Joel and Bowen, they dig so deep in the movie. But there is so much of that, that, that so much is reflected back to the audience that I think they'll recognize in their friend groups, mm. you know, the like sort of casual dragging we all do of each other, oh, yeah. the, the laziness, the lounging, because it's, it's equal parts. I'm, I'm calling it equal parts slutty and soulful. Ooh, um, I love that. I love that's that. My, that's my own little. That cl- like, that's give, good. That's the pull quote, press. slutty and soulful. That's, that's, good. that's how I feel about it, you know, and but but in the soul of the movie is really in the friendship and you feel that when you go to fire island and you're all waking up and you're in your sweatpants and you're on your phones like you know and you're just chilling and you know and you're just chilling and you know you have like dinner all together like yeah we all know those moments and and it is equal parts that and what's found in those moments that it is you know going out to the underwear party and like divvying out drugs yes. and i think that <laughs> you know it really is an accurate portrayal of of what goes down and um therefore it makes me even more proud because i feel like we got it right you know what i mean it it could be one thing to have an experience but then it's another thing to actually feel like we captured it and when i watch it i was like oh my god i feel like i went (laughs) you know the island is shot so beautifully it's gorgeous the sunsets the oh my god the beaches it's really it's so beautiful and it's like felipe rdp oof so good so good and it's one of those things where it's like i watched it i was like oh i'm excited for the summer i was like oh i have something to look forward to like i gotta i gotta get there i gotta go there um and it's it's, a real love letter it is i want to talk a little bit about your character of luke and like and like yeah do you think like Luke, if you put Luke and Darcy in a room, what do you think would happen? (laughs) (laughs) I would hope they would hook up. Honestly, I think (laughs) they'd Well, Luke is such a slut. So that's the thing. And Darcy is so pent up and needs it so bad. Absolutely. you know what? This is—is is that kind of weird that I'm like thinking about the sexual chemistry between two people that I play? But you know, Luke is a lot more loose. I think like so. It was really fun to channel sort of like a flirtatious energy, and you know, Joel did write it with me in mind, which I both think take as a compliment and also as a full drag. That's- like when I when it was announced that I was playing like the Lydia comp. Mm-hmm. All the Pride and Prejudice fans were like, of course, Matt's doing that. And I was like, all right, relax. <laughs> I know? get it. I get it. Yeah. But like, he is the messy sister. Yeah. And um, uh, he gets into trouble for sure in a way that I'm really proud of the way it's mapped onto this movie. And I think it's it gets really real. And I'm super excited about the way that that was executed and think I'm really excited about the sort of, well, am I excited about the discourse? I don't know. But I anticipate a discourse there about will, there it. There will be discourse. 
There will be discourse, which I welcome. And then with Darcy, you know, so much of it is... He, he's thinking a lot more about the control he has over himself and his atmosphere than Lucas, who I think has no regard for <laughs> any sorts of sort of control. He's more wanton in that way. So I think that they would look at each other with curiosity and maybe honestly, even a little bit of longing because of what the other has. But yeah. they're very different. They're very different characters. They're very different. They're sort of on polar opposite ends of sort of like a, you know, uninhibitedness spectrum, if you had to say, you know, in terms of who keeps things sort of close to their chest or sort of buttoned up and is, you know, sort of like, yeah, perfectly composed. That's definitely yeah. more Darcy leads. And then you got Luke, who's, you know, a free bird. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, you know, where Luke starts in the movie and where Luke ends in the movie is sort of where lessons are learned and he, he and you'll see how that plays out. And with Darcy, I'm excited to see you see a complete unraveling. Yeah. So um, another Nicole Kidman ass moment. Well, I'll say it myself. I'll say it. Well, I mean, you've only seen the first two episodes, but. I'm really excited because mm. I think that the show becomes and the show is always a vehicle for Vanessa, but it opens up to the ensemble in ways that are so exciting. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to be on the show. I still can't even believe I booked the show, to be yeah. honest with you. Guess what? You threw it away. You said you said it yourself. You sometimes, you know, you yeah, th- actors th- throw it away. You throw it away. <laughs> if there's one thing you take away from this podcast, actors throw it away. Yeah, I'm just encouraging all the actors out there to not try. <laughs> not try. So <laughs> I can swoop in and book. And that's that's <laughs> smart. And that's that's the T. It's a tactic. I learned something from Darcy. I know about, you know. <laughs> very yes, that's very calculating and very that's very smart. That's really great. Oh my goodness. Well, Fire Island, it hits uh, Hulu on June 3rd. So you got to, you know, you got to stream it once it hits. And I love that for you. It's on Showtime and, you know, it's every Sunday, right? It's really fantastic. It airs on Sunday and streams on Fridays, which is sort of very queer to have like two debuts. You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, that's the streaming age. That's the thing, you know? I'm excited for people to find it and binge it because I think it's going to be a great binge. Like obviously watch it every week as it rolls out. But two, it's like one of those shows that especially as the season gets going, you're going to really be wanting to see what happens next. I'm really excited that we have a full-on cliffhanger at one point. I haven't gotten there yet, so I'm, okay, my interest is peaked. I'm definitely, I'm leaning in. Um, And then also listen to, like, I mean, if you're listening to this, you know that Matt has an amazing podcast with Bo and Yang from SNL. Um, Yeah, you gotta, you you know, you you gotta get him wherever you can. And next time, you know, well, this time you're on Vanity Fair, so next time I'll, I'll come over there. Okay, perfect. I mean, honestly, we just had a 300th episode, so it's it feels crazy, but it's been going for six years. That's great. That can't be true, because I remember and the first episodes. Fun. It's still fun. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday with our usual roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Uh, tweet at us at LittleGoldMan about who else you might want to hear us talk to. Or sign up to text with us at JoinSubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen. Or text the number 718-550-2059. This week's episode was edited and produced, as always, by Brett Fuchs. 